Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at The Bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. In late 2021, I was pleased to get the chance to speak with Rob Doyle about his new book, Autobibliography, in which he recounts a year spent rereading 52 books, from the Dharmapada and Marcus Aurelius via the Tibetan Book of the Dead, Ursula Le Guin, Roberto Bolaño and Svetlana Aleksevich. Detailing the memories the books unearthed and the impact they had on him, Autobibliography is a fascinating insight into the apprenticeship of one of our most exciting young novelists and a full-throated, although not unambiguous, celebration of the power of literature. So I think where I'd like to begin is the um, the origins of the project itself. So, you know, autobibliography, it's quite a um, it's quite a strange kind of composite work. Could you talk a little bit about uh, about how it came about? Yeah, I was living in Berlin uh, for a few years. And in 2019, while I was over there, I got the uh, weekly gig of writing a column for the Irish Times newspaper back home. Uh, in which I had every week I had a space to write about my favorite old book. Basically, that was the so, a pre, another author had written a similar column the previous year, mm-hmm. and they kind of passed it on to a different writer each year. Um, where it was, the idea was you kind of reprise or reflect on a pre twenty first century book every week for a year that mm-hmm. meant something to you. Uh, or that I, as I say in the in, uh, introduction, that formed, reformed, or even deformed me, you know, mm-hmm. books that had left a mark on my life some way or another. So, yeah, while living over there throughout that year, every week, I wrote one of these uh, short articles. They were, the only problem I had with it was that they were somewhat frustratingly limited in that they had to be uh, 340 words maximum that was all they could fit into the column so uh, but i I decided to try to use that as a kind of the constraint as a as Mm -hmm. a kind of um as a a prompt as a a creative like like a create a creative constraint you know and uh so i I had a great time writing this column and i i took it quite seriously you know i always think if you're going to write anything whether it's a book review or the chapter of a novel or a column, or uh, even even an online interview. Uh, I don't really see any reason not to make it great, as good sure. as you can, you know. And 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 also in the back of my mind, everything I write, it's always going in some potentially going in some future book. Mm-hmm. And it was no different with this column. I was writing it going. Someday, somehow, I'm going to put these in a book. I'm not sure what the book is just yet, whether it's just a collection of, you know, my miscellaneous nonfiction or a more focused book, but it's it's probably going to go into a book. So, uh, yeah, I, 
like everything I do in writing, really, I saw the project, the column, the newspaper column, as a kind of um, means to um, further an ongoing self-inquiry, uh, yeah. self self-reflection through through writing, and um, so so some of the columns were quite personal. They weren't just about the books; they were kind of about a life in reading, you know. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, and and where I was at various stages of life. So I was going back to novels I had read as you know a, a tormented teenager, you know, a p- angsty punk reading uh, Ursula K. Le Guin or reading uh, I don't know George Bataille or whoever it was. Um, and and I reread the books. Um, a couple of them actually. I made. Uh, there's a bit of a a slight uh, white lie in the in the in the promotion of the book, which is that it's all about rereading. Whereas mm-hmm. the, the the fact is, I for a couple of the books in there, I used the occasion as a kind of uh, prompt to get me to read books I'd meant to read for a long time that I had yeah, never gotten yeah, around yeah. to, and then I wrote about them as if I was rereading them. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I didn't really, you know. But um, so that was that, and that was the column. So yeah, by the end of the year, obviously, I had fifty-two of these kind of micro um, literary um, bursts. These 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 kind of they, you can't call them reviews because the books are are well they're they're in the past. You know, they're more mm-hmm. they they were more personal, like I say. So I had fifty-two of them, and uh, I kind of felt like God. That was so so much fun, you know. But the, the, I was thinking, God, I, I wonder, could I just publish the fifty-two of them as a little book, you know, a kind of yeah. little, one of those little kind of books you see up the front of the bookshop, just a little kind of like a like a, a, a sampler, you know, like a yeah. like a little suite or something, you know, that books fifty-two about books. books that Rob thinks you should read before you yeah, die. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, before he kills you, right? <laughs> <laughs> the books you read before I um, I kill you. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that kind of thing. But then I kind of realized, oh, there's not quite enough there. You know, had the mm-hmm. columns been longer, maybe double the length, maybe that would have worked. But um, then I was talking to my original publisher of my first book way back mm-hmm. in um, uh, 2014 in Ireland. He's uh, Anthony Farrell. He's the publisher of the Lilliput Press. And he had read and enjoyed the column. And he just kind of casually suggested to me that I should do something with it. He didn't really specify what, but uh, he said, you know, that that could work as a book if you just, you know, give it something, flesh it out a bit or something. And I was, I, he, I met him on the street saying that that's the thing about Dublin. You know, you're walking down the street and you meet your old <laughs> publisher and he gives you an idea and you walk off. And by the time I had gotten home to my girlfriend's place where I was staying at the time, I, I knew exactly what to do yeah. with it. And I was like, oh, okay, I see what this book is now. It's going to be, kind of split screen effort so on one page you're going to have these book these numbered 52 book columns Mm -hmm. and then on the opposite page uh, opposite each one i'll have a connected uh, either tangentially or or strongly connected italicized kind of essay Mm self-reflection meditation on something related either to books or to reading or to writing or to literature, mm-hmm. or uh, to the life through which all of this literature has flowed. Yeah. So uh, and so, yeah. In a yeah. way, it's that kind of duality that makes the the book so special. In a way, because it's sort of, uh, I think, one thing that it reflected back to me while I was reading it was the experience of reading and rereading. Like there are 
um, as you said a moment ago, books that we associate with certain periods of our life, like the the, the moment when we read them becomes permanently intertwined often with the the place that you are, the weather that was taking place at the time, the 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 smells and stuff. Like I, I remember, for example, the first time I read Tropic of Cancer was on the roof of a hostel in Mexico. And even wow. though that sort of has nothing really to do with what's going on in the book, yeah. for me, the two will always be kind of inextricably linked. Oh, um, that's, that's lovely. And that, just to uh, leap in over you there for a second, yeah, yeah. That really, it's, it, it's so reminiscent of the, um, the epigraph to the book. One of the two quotes at the beginning of of the book is by Roberto Bolaño mm-hmm. and it's I even remember the color of the Mexican sky during the two days it took me to read the novel there you go, there you go. Yeah, he was yeah. talking about Henry Miller he was talking about you reading Henry Miller. <laughs> <laughs> that that's a very kind of Bolaño thing to do to me and I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna draw a line right now <laughs> but, but before we come and talk a bit more about the kind of the the content of both the yeah. kind of the the reviews and the the sort of the, the reflections, let's say. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the kind of the choice of books because you said twice that it was fun. And like for me, the idea of selecting 52 books that had in some way shaped me and firstly limiting it to the 52 and then secondly kind of making that kind of public as a as a sort of a document of of my psychological development or my de- development as a reader or development as a writer – I feel would be both kind of exciting and kind of terrifying. Um, and I'm just curious about your sort of, yeah, your, 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 your process of selecting which titles you were going to write about. Was it done on a week to week basis? Did you work up kind of a list more or less before you started? Did you try and sort of say, okay, I want to do this one, but I'll leave it till the end so that like, I don't put people off or I don't kind of, you know, shoot my load too early, so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I, I suppose the reason why uh, I see why you would see it as kind of terrifying in one way, but it's very, po- you know, obviously I've read uh, a lot of your stuff and I think maybe I'm more of an exhibi- a shameless exhibitionist than you are. <laughs> so, so I love this kind of thing, you know, I love this kind of self, this public self, um, mm-hmm. self aggrandizing, self humiliation, self, uh, self, uh, crucifixion shit, you know, this is, <laughs> it's my, my shtick all around. Uh, so yeah, but no, it was, very, but it's very much, there's one thing to, there, there's, there's, there's always be, you know, behind that, that autobiographical or exhibitionistic impulse, there's always this kind of craving to leave some sort of sign of what you have experienced, you know, like mm-hmm. the kind of the, the, the graffiti or the, the, the cave wall, you know, kind of, uh, scribbling it's, uh, tried to leave an imprint um, of oneself and all that one has experienced and witnessed, you know, bearing witness um, even to your own experience. And so I was really excited by the idea yeah, of yeah, yeah. Um, not just boosting these other books. You know, they don't need boosting. A lot of a lot of them are quite famous. They're not. They're not all that obscure. Some of them are a bit obscure, but um, it's more what they meant to me and why mm-hmm. they meant to me and and. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, I kind of, there were some of them that I just knew straight up, like, oh, I, I'm excited now. I have another chance to write about Nietzsche and mm-hmm. to really, you know, just because he was such a kind of libidinized kind of writer for me for, for so much of my life, so, somewhat less so now, you know, uh, but every even seeing his name kind of lit up a spark in me of excitement, yeah. of danger and of um, 
a kind of transgression of a fear, the sublime, all of that stuff. And so having another chance to kind of talk in public about why this guy is the renegade, he's the this yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. Colonel Kurtz f- f- figure in philosophy was, was exciting and Schopenhauer and people like that. Um, but uh, also, let me see, I'll, you know, it, yeah, just some of them like, um, it, it's just always exciting to me to get to get the opportunity to kind of rhapsodize or to articulate uh, or or describe something I admire mm-hmm. or yeah. something that moves me or something that fascinates me. And even though I'm writing about uh, something objectively outside myself, something um, even somebody else's work, that to me is as expressive as writing fiction. You know, yeah. it's 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 as 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 much of an emotional thing as writing fiction. And so that was really, but yeah, I kind of planned it out a little bit. But I did some authors like Carl Jung, or whatever I held to, towards mm-hmm. the or Albert Camus. I put towards the back because I didn't yeah, want yeah, to yeah. just have all the really really the ones that really most excited me up the front. I tried to balance it out. You know. Mm-hmm. It's. I'm curious as well about what you said um, about your um, your fiction as well, because like um, it's true that sort of in your fiction, particularly in um, this is the ritual, the short story collection, and Threshold, you have never kind of held back with writing about the writers that have influenced you or that you've been reading and things like that. But it's always been in the context of either short stories or or the novel form. Is there something sort of fundamentally different for you as the experience in the experience of being, you know, Rob Doyle, who is writing about the Rob in Threshold, who, as we kind of talked about before, is both kind of you and not you, and it's this kind of weird melange of fiction and fact. And then mm. Rob Doyle in Autobibliography, who, for all intents and purposes, at least is avowedly the real no. Rob Doyle. Yeah, no, there wasn't actually that much difference. And and it is, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to call this one a work, my first work of straight nonfiction. Mm. Autobibliography is, is a nonfiction book. Um, there really isn't anything in it that's even in that kind of thresholdy way uh, that's a bit exaggerated or um, um, mutated or warped or something like that. It's 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 pretty much everything in it happened, you know, and mm-hmm. it's it's just a direct self um, self portrait, mm-hmm. you know, in in readings and in 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 analysis and in memories and digressions and anecdotes. Um, but actually, the the truth of the matter. Um, and uh, I hope this doesn't contradict too much what I said last time I was talking to you about <laughs> Threshold. But the truth of the matter is, for all of the kind of fictional flourishes and the um, uh, hyperbole and the kind of weird made-up stuff that happens in Threshold, which, you know, which is an otherwise um, kind of memoiristic, essayistic, travelogue, kind of self-exploratory uh, account of a period of life, um, that 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 nonetheless was almost entirely me. You know, it was very mm-hmm. much. It was it was it was definitely a bit of a persona of myself, mm-hmm. but it, it really was um, me. And so, I fairly much did believe. You know, any of the kind of digressive thoughts about books or philosophy in that book, you could be pretty certain that that's more or less how I feel and think about things. So with this one, it was kind of just going using that same voice, but in a in a mm-hmm. more purely um, candidly, um, 
uh, non-fictional way. Um, so yeah, it, it wasn't such a big leap. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing um, we're noticing now um, in, the, in the bookshop is the kind of a raft of COVID books. So oh, like, you know, yeah. novels that were composed during COVID, novels that you know, are about COVID, books about like government failures and things like that. Mm. And in one sense, this is um, a COVID book too, because sort of almost by, well, completely by accident, obviously, because you hadn't <laughs> predicted the pandemic, this kind of huge event arrived in the process of your your writing these columns and your your um, writing of the autobibliography. And now one thing that our listeners won't know is that you were actually due to come and stay with us at the bookshop. Um, I think it was in April um, of, of last year, of 2020. And so, and in fact, you were the first guest that we yeah. had to write to. And I remember I was looking back at these conversations uh, yeah. earlier and they sort of, they begin very tentatively, like, uh, <laughs> you know, Rob, are you sure? Just to check, are your ferry tickets cancelable? Uh, and then it kind of progresses to, yeah, like things are getting a bit weird here. I don't know how things are in Ireland. And very, very quickly it, um, it escalated oh, yeah. uh, to obviously everything being cancelled and all of us being locked down in our various countries. Um, could you just talk a little bit about the impact that, this kind of completely almost kind of otherworldly experience had on the yeah. world of this book yeah well otherworldly and apocalyptic and you're mm -hmm. you're exactly right i mean i remember those text messages between you and i um, about god you know maybe just maybe you should look at, into the possibility that you might be coming over and then gradually it's like now the world is ending you know it's, it's <laughs> yeah. over every man for himself <laughs> see you see you in the next world life you know uh, it, it, it escalated rapidly but uh you know l like everybody else on the planet i was astonished um struck in alternatively with anxiety and a kind of a kind of exhilaration just at the just at finding this vast historical event going on and all manner of other emotions but so this is now this is where the book's kind of split screen nature mm -hmm. becomes apparent uh, or becomes irrelevant because you know i had written these columns in 2019 mm -hmm. and then in uh early 2020 i moved back to ireland to um, launch and promote threshold which had just come out and i moved on my own down to a house on quite isolated, really on the coast of Wexford mm -hmm. uh, in Rosslare Harbour by the sea and the ports down there and uh, began to write this book and uh, or began to write the, the, the autobibliography parts of the book. In other words, the kind of 52 mirror essays mm -hmm. in italics that kind of match each essay. I kind of did one every day, more or less, for, uh, for a couple of months. And it was just a it, it, it was a strange time because it was simultaneously blissful because, you know, when you just really get into a creative rhythm and mm -hmm. you just know that what you're doing is going to be okay, somehow it's going to work out, you know, mm -hmm. you, you kind of, the anxiety diminishes a bit. You see that there is a book there. So, and it was beautiful. The springtime weather started coming in. I was writing every morning. I was uh, going out, taking long walks on the beach every day. I was seeing the seals and the ships and the ferries. <laughs> And so it was just a, it was a delightful and um, solitary time. And then only about maybe two or three weeks into this interlude, the pandemic happened. And uh, because there was no, there was great freedom in writing this book because the essays, the 52 
in between essays, even though they were all loosely about books or reading or writing, or they really, they were about life, you know, they mm -hmm. were about my life and they were about the world. They were about anything I wanted them to be about essentially. Mm -hmm. And so as the pandemic happened, um, it felt perfectly natural to include my personal real time witnessing and observations and emotions of this global astounding event uh, um, intermingling with, with, with the reveries about where I was and the, the coast and the books I've been reading and my own life and my own past. Um, so it became a kind of um, partially a pandemic book um, you know, you, you certainly wouldn't market it as such, you know, that, that, could, that could give people the wrong idea altogether. But, but, but that event, that, mm -hmm. that kind of hyper object of the pandemic is, is, is looming and is happening in the background. Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of, it probably comes in of the 52 essays. It probably, um, shows itself in about a 10 of them or something mm -hmm. like that, you know, uh, in between more, um, more delvings into memory and places I've lived and places I've been and stuff like that. One thing um, I was thinking when, when considering the kind of the, the COVID uh, sections was about reading more generally, because one thing that several people have said to me since the pandemic, uh, since lockdown, um, but even as restrictions have started to be lifted is that they, they feel they've lost their concentration. And of course, hmm. a lot of the sense of concentration uh, when, when you've lost your sense of concentration, the first thing that tends to go is the capacity to sit down for long periods to read. Now, there's probably many different ways that that could be diagnosed. Like maybe it comes from the kind of the fear, the anxiety, the the constant checking of the news or social media for for, for any sort of uh, glimmer of hope. And I guess maybe that gets your brain into a rhythm which is not particularly suited to to books. But I'm curious to know for someone who had just essentially written for a year about reading and was then delving back into those texts. Were you able to, to read quite um, kind of peacefully during that time and since? Well, uh, now bear in mind that by the time the pandemic happened, the actual rereading, the year of rereading had passed. So I, you know, I was reading kind of whatever I wanted again by that mm -hmm. stage. And just in that, you know, maybe you've been there yourself, but I was just in that kind of reading for inspiration mm -hmm. uh, mode that when I'm in a good writing um, rhythm, I tend to get into where I'm just kind of plucking books up and reading novels, mm -hmm. but also just reading passages from beloved books and yeah, yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, but no, I, I, I did. Ha I remember one experience I had early on quite powerfully was this, that of the sudden drastic irrelevancy of so many of the novels and not, it just mm -hmm. felt like this watershed moment had happened and was mm -hmm. happening wherein everything that had been written prior to spring 2020 was almost quite literally from a different world than the yeah, one we yeah. were now living in and so i was looking at novels probably really good novels or you know beloved novels that i hadn't read yet that had been published a couple of years prior or a year prior and i had them in my hands and i was I just, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't relate. I couldn't, you know, I tried to read them. Now, this was the early weeks of the pandemic. Sure, so, yeah. so I was trying to read them, but I just felt like I was, I and everybody else on the planet were now in this science fictional 
dystopian movie scenario mm-hmm. where you know it was like an alien invasion or something mm-hmm. it was it was such a vast event uh that these no i just could not could not get on a on a wavelength with these novels um but also the fact that for about a month i was just absolutely glued to my laptop to my phone mm-hmm. to podcasts it was just all i could read or think or wanted to know about was the plague you know yeah, it's the, yeah. the plague it's it's coming i was I remember the first time when I was down in um, Ross Lair on my own, the, the, the first kind of clear sign I had <clears throat> that what we were into was something utterly unprecedented and vast mm-hmm. and terrifying was a New York Times podcast, uh, which was a report um, in a long interview with the, uh, the, the, the chief doctor at Bergamo mm-hmm. in one of the hospitals that was being overrun. And it was terror. It was truly terrifying. It was uh, he, you know, he broke down crying, and he warned. He just warned everybody else in Europe that this is mm-hmm. coming, and he pleaded with them to avert it. And I remember after that, I was shocked and stunned. Yeah, it was yeah. straight onto WhatsApp, family members, everybody saying, "Okay, look, this is real. This is happening." We're uh, and true enough. About three weeks later, we were in the full yeah. pandemic. But. Um, that puts me in mind of something that um, you write. So one of the the authors that you write about is Susan Sontag mm. um, and her, her collection Against Interpretation. And um, there's that sort of that moment um, where, you know, Sontag is, is, is dying. Mm. Um, and you get the sense, and you write, in fact, that the knowledge amassed over a lifetime spent, quotes, in the search for aesthetic bliss has no worth now. It is not transmuted into wisdom. She panics until the end. And it did put me in mind just of what you were saying about what was going on in the hospital and the way different people were reacting to the pandemic. Kind of, it put me into a broader reflection of why we read generally. And I think that's one of the areas where uh, autobibliography is at its most fascinating, actually, are your reflections upon what reading means to you and what service or what sort of profit, if any, uh, you get from it uh, or you have got from it in the past. Mm. And what's interesting is it's not sort of unambiguous either. It's, it's not kind of, it's not all positive. It's all sort of, there's really a sense of you're not entirely sure if all this time spent with books has been worth it. Yeah, good. I'm very glad you mentioned that because um, one of my mild um, discomforts around the book was that it would be perceived or even marketed in such a way that people thought it was a kind of um, cheesy, uh, sentimental celebration of reading, you know, mm-hmm. of reading for its own sake. Um, and and th- there is an element in it of the sheer, the love letter to literature. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. is, a re- it is a kind of a reverence book, you know, a, a, a devotee's book in a way, because, you know, ultimately I am manically, you know, madly devoted to literature as a reader, as a writer, as a lover, you know, but at the same time, uh, it's, it's by no means a, an unambiguous or unambivalent, uh, mm-hmm. celebration of reading for its own sake. And I mean, that's right there from the introduction is that this is a book about reading as the path to ruination, the mm-hmm. path to destruction, the path to damnation. And the part to grievous self harm, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and you know, and even like a lot of the books that I choose, um, you know, they're, they're 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 kind of masochistic pleasures. You know, I'm kind of one mm-hmm. of those people who, when I was a certain age in puberty, let's say, 
I kind of, uh, I just, I, I, I went from being like a good Catholic boy to pure, pure damnation, you know, more or less over. I think it was the first time I heard like a punk song. There was just no going back. It was, it was just pure darkness and chaos afterwards, you know, and the consequences are, are unfolding still. And they're, they've been severe and, uh, terrifying and, uh, crushing uh, as well as, you know, liberating and mm. uh, extra ex exhilarating and all of that stuff so um i kind of wanted to get into the idea of reading as abuse reading as mm. self-abuse as um kind of playing with fire and then of course mm. being burned alive um and so just you know writing about re uh, writing about authors like say michel welbeck or mm -hmm. um even George Bataille, people like that. A lot of these French perverts, you know, who really did a, <laughs> did a number on me. It was almost like me kind of looking at them now saying, you bastards, you completely, you, 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 uh, you seduced and abandoned mm. me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm here for revenge. It was kind of me saying, now here I am in my late 30s, and this is the kind of nihilistic reading that I did at a certain stage in life, and I'm still doing to some degree. Uh, yeah. And, and, and uh, here are some of the consequences. Here's some of the kind of, some of the brutal stuff that's gone on in my life, partly as a consequence of the books I've steeped myself in. Having said that, you know, that's only one part of the story. Sure. There, are, there are Buddhist texts in there, which were of great solace to me at various points in life. The Dhammapada is in there, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. There are books about psychedelic substances and drugs, um, mm -hmm. books about Stoic, uh, Stoical philosophy and politics and just novels there aren't as many novels as uh, as you might think there would mm. be you know there's there's maybe more kind of non-fiction or autobiographical writing and stuff but there's there's darkness and the the, the lure the lure of destruction uh, yeah, is in yeah, there yeah. that's just always been a part of my like knowledge has always excited me when it's forbidden knowledge mm -hmm. when it's a kind of gnosis you know and, but that's uh, another another yeah. part of the book which I find fascinating is this idea of rereading and this idea of revisiting and your kind of journey with certain writers as well. I mean, I think sort of Nietzsche is the um, the, the the most obvious kind of candidate for this, where uh, it's it's clear that when you um, you first read Nietzsche, and it was a similar thing to me, and it was just kind of like you know, and sort of sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, sort of being introduced to these ideas were just sort of like. Uh, uh, a bolt out of nowhere mm. and yet we get the impression that to sort of as the um as the years go on you kind of think yourself into different stages of Nietzsche's life in a way so there's just sort of you there's a reflection at a moment where you say actually I realized that when I'm writing this I was more or less the same age as when Nietzsche was writing the genealogy of morals mm. and I find there's something really interesting about the sort of uh, the age at which you um, encounter a text. And it put me in mind of, of quite a few years ago now, I interviewed the now, sadly, recently departed Jim Haynes about um, about Henry Miller, who was actually his kind of, his idol. And one mm. thing he said was that he, he read Tropic of Cancer as a sort of a teenager, uh, then read it again when he was 39 or 40, which was the, the age when Miller wrote it, and then read it again sort of every 10 years after that. And he said it was always fascinating for him to see how the book changed as he got older. And as Henry Miller was first the the more experienced kind of man to look up to, yeah. then the man of the similar age, and then the sort of the younger, sort of perhaps more foolish man. Yeah. Um, and we kind of have a feeling that there's a 
similar sort of thing going on with you and Nietzsche in the in this yeah. book. Yeah, absolutely. And with, with many of the authors in it, actually. And it is one of the uh, experiences of aging is um, you get a bit of distance, a bit you get a bit cooler in your mm. attitudes, even to authors who you completely revere. And, you know, yeah. who, who like, obviously, obviously, you know, I, I don't need to say, but Nietzsche is one of the great geniuses of Western civilization and of philosophy. And a terrifyingly original thinker and all of that. But um, at this age of life now, uh, when I'm, as you say, at the age when he was writing some of his most revolutionary works, they don't have the same, they don't convince me as mm -hmm. utterly as they did when I was a young, you know, uh, kind of newbie to the world of ideas and all mm -hmm. of this stuff. And he was this un, unimpeachably grand, figure this looming genius figure you know almost a, a, a looming over the entire culture and civilization with his dark prophecies uh he doesn't seem so unimpeachable anymore i you know mm -hmm. I, i'm willing to kind of question him and uh and th there's a kind of yeah there's a, a gra as you age or as you mature there's a kind of a splendid isolation begins to set in. You know, you're you're writing your own book. I mean, if you're a writer, you're writing your own books. And I suppose the relationship to the great authors who have been your fathers and mothers and family, uh, you know, your your elders, your masters, in a sense, becomes more collegial. Collegiate is that the word? Um, uh, you know, more more. Um, not, not, not to, not to put myself on a par with somebody like Nietzsche. Obviously, <laughs> you know, obviously we're playing a different, uh, we're playing, a, we're we're boxing at slightly different weights there, you know. But, but, but you know, the, it, it, the relationship does change, and uh, to to a degree, there's a kind of growing renunciation as you know, you become more individuated, to use a Jungian term, yourself, mm -hmm. and more um, assured of your own vision, and so on. There's a kind of um, a, a healthy and uh, uh, even enjoyable and affirming distancing and pushing away mm -hmm. um, at its most cynical. E.M. Choran, the Romanian nihilist yeah. pessimist who features heavily in the book, said, uh, yeah, he wouldn't mind being a cannibal, but not for the pleasure of eating a man, but rather for the pleasure of spitting him out. <laughs> so it's a, it's a bit it's a bit like that you know I'm kind of like vomiting out the the authors purging myself of the authors who really screwed me up more or less uh apocalyptically but more or less enjoyably and welcomely yeah. in my youth <clears throat> like deep down I kind of want I I know that I must have wanted the ruinous um and 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 chaotic life I've lived since you know um, yeah. but these but are the ones who got me in this in this fix in the first place yeah. That's kind of the beauty of it, though, isn't it? To be able to have kind of Nietzsche when you're young and then Nietzsche when you're, you know, enter a middle age and then maybe, you know, Nietzsche when you're old as well. And to have kind of the different the different perspectives on this one, this one great mind is. Yeah, absolutely. And because he's such a, he's such a crystalline, you know, there's, there's such complexity and such mm -hmm. kind of perspectival um, layers to his thought. There's, you can look at him again and again and again. I remember Albert Camus called mm -hmm. him one of the three evil geniuses of Western philosophy, <laughs> along with uh, Karl Marx and um, 
and angles. But he said with Nietzsche, it's different in that yeah, there's always, when you find something really terrifying and abhorrent in Nietzsche, mm-hmm. and there is some really, really, really questionable stuff in there. Um, but when you find that, you'll look elsewhere in the body of work and find something that tempers it mm. with, or something that that gives a different slant on it, something that softens it. And uh, so, so, yeah, there is there is that sense of uh, seeing it differently as as one matures, as yeah, I mature. Yeah. But nonetheless, I do feel, as I say in the book, that I don't feel somebody like Nietzsche will speak to the second half of my life. Mm-hmm the way he did to the first half of my life because of the nature of his thought, the intensity of it, the kind Mm -hmm. of heroic rebellion aspect of it. That's not really so much what I'm interested in. That doesn't really nourish me as much as it did at a particular age in life. So I need a new, a new daddy, a new father. (laughs) I don't know who it's going to be. Jesus Christ or uh, Mohammed. I was going to say the logical thing is to return to the being the good Catholic boy who was was destroyed at 15. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah. That would be the Dostoevskian kind of arc, right? It really would. It really would. Wouldn't it? I I feel like I've little choice at this time. There's nothing else there. I'm not really, I'm not really, uh, Again, another Joran quote, um, which I, I heard Jeff Dyer quoting not so long ago on another mm. podcast, is uh, as you progress through life, there there's ever less and less to convert to. Mm. And uh, there's truth nice. in that too, you know. Yeah, yeah. Were there any of the books um, that you, when you started rereading them, that you're idea of them was so completely transformed from what you had imagined you were going to respond to it and react to it? Uh, No, not really, because uh, I think when I was sitting down to write most of them, it was the the impulse behind it was more to um, share my enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. That's something I just have always loved to do as a writer. If I'm really enthusiastic about something, I want to I want to infect other people with that, you know, and I want to say, you know, this is so like if I'm talking about Bolan, it's the same thing. If I'm down in the pub and I'm talking about Roberto Bolaño, you know, it, it, it's it's going to be a similar energy to that, which sure. I tried to get yeah, on the page and saying, oh, yeah, you know, I, I can see why you're a bit skeptical. But like, you really need to check this out because and then try to articulate as um, seductively as possible why somebody should check this thing out, you know. Because mm-hmm. I just think, wow, it's it's something I want to something you want to share. So uh, that 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 tended to be the motivation more so than um, anything else. And then rereading the books was often often challenged that a little bit, but generally mm-hmm. it didn't really actually. Yeah, you know there were, as you say, di- like rereading say Borges. I'm just flicking through the book now, and he pops mm-hmm. up. Um, Again, a bit like reading Nietzsche. Well, you call him the century's greatest writer. His century's greatest writer. Yeah, I just, I'm just in love with him. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, pr- I'm probably, a, at this stage, I'm probably a bit more in love with um, Roberto Bolaño, who, who, whose spirit really haunts and hangs over this book in lots of ways. Um, but he was a Borgesian himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, reading him now, I went back and read a few of his stories recently, and they're still great. They're still extraordinary. Yeah. They're still singular. But it wasn't, it, it didn't have it just it just couldn't be the same you know mm-hmm. as seeing it's like the first time you see whatever your favorite movie is or film or hear the whichever band or something you know you, you can you may you may not get that same exact high and hit again mm-hmm. from it so sometimes there was a slightly diminished intensity of enjoyment but but not really of um 
anything more substantive than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that I really appreciated about the selections as well was that there were some which were sort of, they felt like the kind of the the unavoidable ones, which were sort of, um, which I could, you know, would kind of imagine might appear in almost everyone's list. So I think, for example, of um, of Moby Dick, for example, which, oh, yeah. okay, I know Moby Dick is very divisive, but it's, you know, it stands there as a as a kind of a, a monumental kind of a monolith of um, of literature. Um, yeah. And then there were a few that sort of from writers that I, I hadn't read and will kind of seek out. Uh, yeah. But there were also the ones, I think the titles I found most fascinating were the sort of, from writers I knew or I know, but the the book, you decided to choose was with one I hadn't read or sometimes hadn't even heard of. So, I mean, I think of the kind of um, uh, Arthur Kussler, for example. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I know like the, the ghost in the machine and Janus and, and that yeah. kind of stuff, but the, um, the, glad- the gladiators, the gladiators. Yeah. So oh. was, was there, was there a sense that you wanted to surprise a little bit as well? I mean, a little bit, yeah. I mean, I, I I would have been embarrassed if my list was shockingly obvious and too obvious, you know, if it was just, you know, so, and I, I don't think it is that, you know, but but at the same time, I didn't want to be just some obscurantist or just pretentious, you know, saying, oh, check out the, the, the stuff I'm into that nobody else. That's just not interesting to me. That's That's juvenile, you know. It was more just really going where the fascination was. But something like... You see, Arthur, Arthur Kessler is one of those authors I read when I was, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was in my 20s, maybe my mid-20s. And uh, I think I first read his most famous one, um, uh, Darkness at Noon, mm-hmm. which is uh, his, his, his brilliant little novel about um, Lenin, Marxist-Leninism and uh, uh, the kind of show trials and followed by departure, Arrivals and Departures, a kind of sequel to it but you know and then i just read tons of his stuff and i read his autobiographies and he he just he was just a fascinating figure to me at that time that kind of debonair kind of dashing hyper intellectual european um Mm mid-century adventurism you know and and joining the communist party and being a spy and all of that stuff uh but his first novel i can't remember how i even read it i think i just bought it online having heard that he'd written a novel about the Spartacus uprising yeah. and it was his first novel and it's brilliant it's a great novel it's 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 historical fiction and it's about the slave insurrection mm-hmm. and as i think i say in the piece about it as i was reading it, it 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 astonished me that somebody had not written this as a novel before maybe they had i just never heard of it um because it's so it's so cinematic you know this mm-hmm. was before they made that film Spartacus in the 50s he wrote it in the, uh, was it about 1937? You know, mm-hmm. this is kind of an allegory for a hell of a lot of crazy stuff that was sure, going on yeah. in Europe at the time. But um, yeah, that was just an engrossing one. And actually, there's a bit of a coda to that one, which isn't in the book, which is that uh, a year or two ago, somebody put me in touch with the editor at that beautiful series that imprint the New York Review of Books mm. Classics. You know what I imp- they, yeah, um, you yeah, sell yeah, a lot of from that Shakespeare yeah. and go, yeah, they're gorgeous. And some of my most happy discoveries of of read in reading terms in the last decade have been those NYRB classics. So I got in touch with the guy and pitched to him um a, a re reissue. I realized mm. that book, The Gladiators, had gone out of print. It's huh. it's it's not published anywhere now. Um and I asked him if he'd be interested in a a, a reissue. And he thought about, and I would write some introduction or whatever. 
And we talked about it for a while, but in the end, he decided not to go with it. So the book remains out of print. Um, but I really urge anybody listening to this to check it out, The Gladiators. I'm sure mm-hmm. you can buy secondhand copies online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's one of those things as well, like a project like this allows you to sort of to resurrect authors who may have been sort of not necessarily fallen into obscurity because I don't think Kersler is forgotten, but yeah. neither is he particularly widely read, I think. Like, I think he's sort of uh, often considered very much a writer of his time and without perhaps a lot to say about yeah. now. But I think actually, um, you know, the little I've read of him, I feel almost he stands kind of on a level with someone like Orwell in his kind of analysis, mm. obviously at the time oh, that he yeah. was writing, but in but sort of, uh, yeah. I think, society more generally. I absolutely agree. And probably I would I would say he stands ahead of Orwell, who I also love in terms of the beauty of his sentences, right. the, the, yeah. the, the, just the style of his writing, or at least it's been a few, quite a few years since I read him, you know, but when I was in my 20s reading him, I remember thinking, wow, this is like, you know, when you first read Nabokov or Martin mm-hmm. Amos or something, every sentence is just electrifying. He had that. And yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. he was... Um, Hungarian and you know writing in English he's writing in French and then then mm-hmm. he learned English and wrote in English and he's writing better English than a lot of contemporary native stylists or a, a lot of native stylists yeah yeah yeah, yeah, so. yeah I mean, funny you mentioned Amos because I was going to ask you because obviously he's included in um, yeah. in this collection and at the moment you say like for a couple of decades resenting Martin Amos has been a British <laughs> national pastime um, which is I mean undeniably so um, but I'm curious about when you were deciding which books to include which writers to include whether you did have an eye on the the internet or you did have an eye on what people might make of your choices now you know people anyone who knows your writing will know that you know sometimes you know a often you don't care how people react b sometimes you will do something in order to make people react in a specific <laughs> way uh, but I I, I I i am interested to know did you kind of have an eye on what people might think of this as a collection of writers as how representative it might be or was it a, an Per, purely personal project for you uh i well both both you know i i did at the time um that was a particularly i think when i wrote it 2019 uh the column it was going out online and i was living alone it was kind of a it was a bit of a fraught period of my life mm-hmm. so I, I really wasn't in much of a confrontational mood at all and I, I had actually and I had withdrawn from all social media for about a year or two which is a great thing to do I still do it periodically I just I use apps now to just lock me out completely lock me out of, uh, <laughs> of, of all social media for for months on end and then I go back on when I'm when I'm hustling when I'm promoting a book but I was doing it at the time for about a year so I was writing these articles and they were going out online and uh, every week, because of the nature of just my interests and and also of my kind of view on the world and maybe my slightly or somewhat unpopular uh, take on things or, or, or counter counter fashionable take on things or whatever you want to call it, uh, sometimes um, then I yeah I can get a bit of blowback you know but I'm I'm always really kind of vigilant about myself not to let some kind of internalized vice of like priggish online moral surveillance um uh, get in the way of what i actually believe or want Mm -hmm. to say um and by the same token not becoming too reactive Uh, i think Mm -hmm. i may have been a few years ago i remember it was a kind of a a not particularly happy time in my life and i think i was 
in a really angry headspace a lot of the time. And then I probably was writing at times just to, just to piss people off or just to kind of, <laughs> just to throw fuel onto the fire sometimes. And there were there were consequences. You know, people think of, the thing about throwing digs is people throw digs back at you. You know, and before you know it, you got two black eyes. And, but uh, no, so when I was writing this, I it, it did seem like the culture did seem quite frenzied like Donald Trump mm-hmm. was in town and you know in power and uh, everybody was just really really mad there was a lot of madness online so every week I was putting up or you know I was watching my columns go out and they were going out in the paper but also they were going out in line and nearly every week I remember thinking oh god is something, <laughs> is this like man- maniacal army gonna turn on me now you know um but I think uh, I think baring your teeth a little bit and not trying to be the the everyone's friend online is is a good way to uh, to to at least minimize the dangers of that happening. You know, yeah, I think it's yeah, if you yeah. go out there like pre- presenting yourself as the kind of like God's gift to morality and virtue, then you're probably a bit more likely to get uh, slung up on the on the on the you know put thrown yeah, into yeah. the the, the pillox or whatever is it called? What are they called? The pillox. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, but yeah, <laughs> let's go. Let's know, go with that. You know, what, what do they call those uh, medieval um, torture things? Uh, um, put them in the stocks. Oh yeah, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> we could edit that out. Like that. <laughs> yeah, I think we should. I think we should. But um, uh, no, yeah. My, the, but the point I was making was, I also just, you know, because I was not online, I didn't really engage with that. I just put them out there. But I did worry. I did. Yeah, I did. You know, the thing about a self-portrait is you're deliberately not trying to hide. You know, you're trying to expose something about yourself and it's not necessarily all pretty or all nice. Mm. And, you know, there's some I think there's a lot of love in this book, as somebody who read it recently said to me, which I liked here. And, you know, but there's also um, it's also partly it's me, you know, really trying to wrestle with some fairly thorny twisted up parts mm-hmm. of my psyche mm-hmm. i mean that's what makes it interesting though i think that's a sort yeah. of you know what what we have is if you look down sort of the list of uh, of writers that you that you engage with in this book it's an incredibly sort of um uh, wide-ranging list of whether it be kind of of styles of genres of nationalities um and it, i think it's sort of it's it's at least my feeling when I came to the end of it was sort of like I'd, I'd been given a kind of um, an insight into a sort of a deeply curious mind. Uh, and I mean, curious in both in the sense of, you know, <laughs> as someone who is, you know, who is very interested in things, but also, you know, very uh, particular in uh, in an approach and a vision of the world. And I think that's what makes um, autobiography such a, such a fascinating read. Um, before we finish though, and this is probably the kind of, uh, the kind of the question which you probably hate and you would probably want to veto, but it's that kind of desert island question of like one of these books. You have to just wow. end up with one of them. You know, you told me you're you're in a isolated tower on the Irish coast yes. at the moment. Let's say let's say let's let's not be cruel and let's not say for the rest of your life, but you're going to be <laughs> stranded there for a year with yeah. one of these books. Which okay. one do you take with you and why? Oh, I so I'm glancing now at the contents page and instinctively. I'm torn between uh, he, Borges leaps out at me, the fictions mm-hmm. of Borges. I wish I wish I had to put in the collected fictions because then I'd have all the stories to play with. <laughs> but, but fictions, each the great thing about 
fictions by Borges or Labyrinths, one of the other collections, or any of the you know early collections, is that every story is a universe unto itself. Yeah, yeah. You know, he creates in 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 ten pages, he'll give you a cosmology and mm-hmm. he'll give you a glimpse of infinity. And so if I had that book with me, I would I would have a I would have a vista on the infinite, even from the confines of my my lonely island. So I, I think I'd be fine. The other one that leaps out at me is Carl Jung, which I haven't even read mm. this book in years, but uh, or since since that thing. But before that, it had been like when I was a teenager. But memories, dreams, and reflections—an extraordinary uh, book. Eh? Yeah, and just because it's 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 about the spirit, it's about the depths, the enigma of humankind, of the self, of existence. Uh, so it's a book that kind of deepens the mystery of life rather than mm-hmm. trying to solve it away. And I think if I was stranded on an island, that would probably help. Well, that sounds like the perfect place for us to leave it. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. Autobibliography is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company, from the Shakespeare and Company online shop or your local neighbourhood independent bookstore, wherever wherever you may be living. Uh, yeah, Rob, all that remains for me to say is thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. It was great to talk to you. I love doing events with Shakespeare and Co. And do come and stay with us soon. <laughs> oh, I will. I want to, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.